Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. So here we are, um, first day of retreat in which you have been practicing today. Mm-hmm. And if this is new to you, uh, you might have the thought, as often can occur, uh, why do people do this? And what's the point? Uh, the first day is not easy for most people. Many, there might be a number of you who are saying, thank goodness, quiet, I have a chance to connect. And maybe you've touched on that. But often there are some other things that happen on the, the first day. How many people were sleepy today? A lot of company, okay. How many people were restless and uh, felt sometimes like they just felt like jumping up and getting out of the out of the room? A few of those, okay. How many people had um, aches in the body? Okay. And uh, how about a busy mind? Yeah. You're doing great. <laughs> right on schedule. Because <clears throat> the first day of practice, you're... Uh, you're getting used to not having outside stimulation, and it's a bit like a fast. You're doing a, a bit of a, de- a detox from stimulation, and it takes a little while to get in touch with your own resource of energy and connect with with yourself. So if you raise your hand for some or all of those, um, this is just part of... Um, part of the process. And what gets easier over time is that uh, if you've been doing this for many years, you know that that's part of the deal. So there's not this question of, why is this happening? Or, yeah, you're fine. <clears throat> Since this is a, a waking up together retreat, <clears throat> wanted to um, start this evening with a, a Dharma talk. Many of the, uh, um, the times we'll be together and presentations won't be so much a full-on talk and, um, and then um, whether Q&A or, uh, or uh, going to sitting and walking. A, a lot of the presentations will be um, stimulating an exploration that then we can do with each other. But tonight, especially after you've done a, a day of practice, I, I, it just felt right to um, start off with a talk. We'll do a little bit after the talk of uh, connecting and exploring what the, the topic was. But uh, I wanted to talk tonight about um, refuge in Sangha. It is different practicing with others. Did you feel it today? If you were on your own and you were just here by yourself and sitting and walking, there possibly would be, there would be a different feel to it. Um, and there's something about being part of the, a group energy that keeps you, keeps you going, especially on that first day. Uh, that mutual commitment that um, that this community that we're forming has to um, 
to be present for our experience. There is challenges that come with being in a group, but mostly uh, tremendous support. The challenges, perhaps you've seen for yourself how the comparing mind can rear its uh, lovely face. Anybody notice a comparing mind today? You know, God, he's going so slowly. You know, who does she think she is eating so mindfully in the the dining room? Or they're still sitting. The bell rang, and they're still sitting. Or like that. I I know this very well. On one of on my first long retreat, um, three month retreat, is <clears throat> a three month retreat that's happening right now as we speak. Uh, that I was at the first. Uh, six weeks of, um, and uh, it's about uh, 80, 85 people sitting for three months. The first time I, I did that, I saw this competitive mind within myself really strongly. All these people, okay. I was going to be, I was had a strong identity of a good yogi, and I was going to be the last one in the hall at night. <clears throat> And as I kept on seeing it within myself, I'm going to be the last, I, f- I at some point said, I'm going to go one better than that. I'm going to be next to last so that I'm not there being proud that I'm the last. <laughs> then I'll really be cool. And I, I went to, to, my, uh, to Joseph, my teacher, and I said, you know, there's something a little bit off here. I, it's really humbling to see my mind. And he told me of, he said, oh yeah, I know, I know that one. When he was in Bodh Gaya, practicing for a number of years at the Burmese Vihara, he was, uh, he had this, his own little sitting space and there was a Danish guy who was in the next room and the, the wall didn't go all the way up to the top of the ceiling. So you could see, you could see if the light was on and he was determined that he would sit until that other guy went to sleep. And he could never do it. It was driving him crazy. And at the end of their long period of practice, he said, how did you practice all through the night? And the guy said, oh, I just slept with the light on. (laughs) Joseph went through a number of moments about that. So anyway, you might see the comparing mind. That's part of being around community. You see those little habits within yourself. But mostly, as we practice and feel a sense of community, there's a lot of inspiration, and it keeps you going. And uh, mostly, it's deeply beneficial. We took refuge in the Sangha last night is one of the three jewels, the triple gem refuge in the Buddha, including the Buddha right within us, refuge in the Dharma, in the way things are, in what life is offering to us, and refuge in the Sangha, in this community of mutual support that, uh, that we share. <clears throat> Why is it so important? And this is really um, touching the, the heart of what we're going to be doing together, waking up together. 
when we're around others who share our values, who share our um, hunger for um, for truth and consciousness, um, it moves us. It elevates us. There's this quality in uh, psychology called the elevation response. When you see others do something inspiring, it brings that out in you. <clears throat> and as uh, I think was mentioned here, uh, maybe I said it last night, uh, Ananda, uh, they talk about Ananda and the holy life, where he says, maybe not, he says to, to the Buddha, uh, one famous exchange, it seems Oh Lord, that having good friends is half of the holy life. And, and the Buddha says, as he often did with his straight man, uh, Ananda, he said, not so, Ananda, not so. Having good friends is the whole of the holy life. It's the whole of the holy life. And if you know in, the, uh, in some of the lists, some of the teachings, there's all of these beautiful qualities that, that we can... Uh, cultivate, that's encouraged to cultivate, uh, one particular list called the seven factors of awakening, seven factors of enlightenment, mindfulness and investigation and energy and joy and calm and concentration and equanimity. Those are the seven factors of enlightenment or awakening. And in the teachings, there is one common causative uh, factor, one common causative link that is suggested if you want to cultivate any one of these, the one common uh, associated um, support for developing those qualities is to be with around people who have those qualities. You want to develop joy, be around people who value and embody joy. You want to develop calm, be around those who have those qualities. It's the, the one um, common thread in all of those factors, how to cultivate those qualities. Because we're affected by everyone around us. If you're around those who are angry or negative or bitter, that rubs off on, on you as well. And so the Buddha said to keep the company of the wise. This is from the Dhammapada. The wise person tells you where you've fallen and where you yet may fall. Invaluable secrets. Follow them. Follow the way. Let them chasten and teach you and keep you from mischief. The world may hate wise people, but good people love them. Do not look for bad company or live with those who do not care. Find friends who love the truth. In the teachings, the, the term kalyanamita is often used, which means a spiritual friend when you find a good spiritual friend um, that's an, an invaluable support for your practice. And maybe you, you know some Kalyanamita group. There are many groups that 
uh, that have formed of just spiritual friends who sit together and, and practice together all around the country. Finding a good spiritual friend, it doesn't mean somebody who has all the answers, but it means somebody who's just walking this path with you. Because it helps to have company on a journey, on any journey, but particularly on uh, the spiritual path, the spiritual journey. Because then we remind each other, even if you understand or you know something, you've touched something deep within you, when you're around others that value that, you remind each other. And if you hear somebody saying something that's really wise, don't get fooled into thinking, oh, they've got so much wisdom. It's there, there's something that they're touching in you that says, yep, right on. And you can be the same for them. <clears throat> and when you have a, a shared common vision of awakening and a commitment, uh, that's uh, tremendously powerful support. When I think of Besides spiritual friends, good relationships are, for me, um, those that uh, can bring out the best in each other. You know, when you're around a good friend that you really feel comfortable and feel um, at ease and feel that you can just be yourself and you just bring out the best in each other just by being around them and them around you, and you help each other to grow. That's the commitment that I, I have with, with my wife of uh, 35 years. We've been together 37 years. It's not, you know, once the dopamine wears off, you've got to find something else to, to keep you there. And it's, it's really worth it if you both are committed to helping each other wake up. Then the relationship is not so much what can I get from this other person, but how can they help bring out the best in me? And hopefully uh, that's what uh, we're learning here, just by our mutual support. There's a, a discourse that the Buddha uh, gives. Uh, it's in the Digha Nikaya the Sigala Sutta, advice to lay people. And he talks about different kinds of friends. I thought I'd share it with you. Um, first he talks about um, enemies disguised as friends. He says, be aware of these four enemies disguised as friends, the taker, the talker, the flatterer, and the reckless companion. And then he goes into detail with each. Each has four qualities that he names. This is just kind of fun. You might kind of check out the people that you know and <clears throat> which category do they fall in? Hopefully they'll be in the good-hearted good friends. The taker can be identified by four things. Always, he's only, he or she is only taking. They ask for a lot while giving little. They perform duty out of fear. 
and they offer service in order to gain something. The talker can be identified by four things. By reminding of past generosity. Hey, you remember when I did that? Remember. Promising future generosity, mouthing empty words of kindness, and protesting personal misfortune when called on to help. Sorry, I've got something else going on. The flatterer can be identified by four things, by supporting both bad and good behavior indiscriminately, praising you to your face, and putting you down behind your back. And the reckless companion can be identified by four things, by accompanying you in drinking, roaming around at night, (coughs) partying, and gambling. No judgment here, it's just what the Buddha says. So, you know, this is not to lay a guilt trip on you or anything like that, but just saying what he says. And the Buddha, you know, and the Buddha's advice was always see for yourself what's true and see for yourself what leads to suffering or what leads to happiness. I don't want you not to have a good time when you you leave here. If it can be a wholesome good time, that's even better. Then there are four good-hearted friends. The helper, the friend who endures in good times and bad, the mentor, and the compassionate friend. The helper can be identified by four things. One who protects you when you're vulnerable. Now this is talking about good friends and protects your wealth as well. One who is a refuge when you are afraid, and in various tasks, providing, what, uh, providing double of what is requested, who is generous there for you. The enduring friend can be identified by four things. They tell you their secrets. They guard your own secrets closely. They don't abandon you in misfortune. And they would even give their life to you, for you, not to you, for you. The mentor can be identified by four things by restraining you from wrongdoing, by guiding you towards good actions, by telling you what you ought to know, and showing you the path to liberation. This particular one, as I read in that other piece in the Dhammapada, somebody who sees when you're straying and who has a good enough relationship to, to say out of love, hey, there's something you might want to know about here. We'll take a look at. And then finally, the compassionate friend can be identified by four things. 
by not rejoicing in your misfortune, by delighting in your good fortune, by preventing others from speaking ill of you, and encouraging others who praise your good qualities. So somebody who's basically got your back. <clears throat> now, were you going down the list of friends and saying who's in which one, like that? Of course that's natural. To have good friends is one of the most important things in our life. And particularly as we are committed to this path or to the path of greater consciousness and clarity and love. But when we start on, out on this path, it's really important to protect and to care for and to tend and nurture our spiritual journey. There's an image that's given in the teachings of um, a tender sapling, planting a tender sapling, a young, a baby tree. When you first put it in, in the ground, you want to put a fence around it to protect it from animals and from uh, inclement weather and, and other dangers. You want to make sure it gets just the right amount of sun, but not too much. Just the right amount of rain, but not too much, because it's still very fragile and could easily um, not survive. But when its roots go deep, then it becomes a strong, healthy tree, and it can withstand different changes in the weather. It is strong enough to withstand um, invaders. And when it fully flowers, when it fully blossoms, it can be, uh, in its maturity, um, spreading out its, branch, its branches and providing shade and, uh, and cool uh, protection for others. And that image is given uh, as an analogy to establishing our spiritual practice. That when we first start out, there's a, a delicateness to it. And we don't want to be around people who say, oh, what are you doing? That, that stuff, that's a waste of time. You know, it, kind of, it can affect our own confidence and faith. But as we get rooted deeply in our practice, it really doesn't matter what others think. You know for yourself, this stuff is really powerful. This stuff is, is really affecting me deeply. And when your practice is deeply rooted, then you can be somebody who reminds others when they're confused and help awaken them uh, and help them see the goodness inside of them or help point them in a direction that, that um, supports that. So having good friends is a, is a, a tremendously important thing. And a good friend doesn't 
necessarily um, take away your pain. Not somebody who can fix things. Not somebody who's going to make it all better through some Herculean act. But often just somebody who's there. Somebody who is understanding and a loving presence. That often is mostly what we're needing. Just a loving, caring presence. It's been shown, and there are a a number of studies that show when somebody is going through um, physiological or uh, emotional pain, that when they hold another person's hand, their threshold for pain and their tolerance is dramatically increased especially if it's of somebody who they have a a loving relationship with or they can feel their love so much the more powerful without even needing to do anything else, just a loving presence. There's a story I love from uh, that Leo Biscaglia, a wonderful, wise teacher who passed away uh, a number of years ago, tells that uh, he was, uh, he was the, the judge in a contest of the most caring person. That was, that was the contest. And the winner of the contest was this four-year-old boy whose mother told, uh, told the story. And she said that uh, uh, her neighbor, their neighbor, this um, older fellow, was who lived right next door um, was in real grieving. His his wife of many years had passed away, and so he was mourning the loss and and going through you know tremendous uh, sadness over a period of time. And uh, one day, the mother and the and and the boy were were outside, and the the man was was sobbing uh, across the way on his on his porch and the boy uh, suddenly uh, left, their, left their yard and went across and um, uh, sat with the man and sat, sat next to him. And uh, after a very short time, the, the man stopped sobbing and calmed down. Um, and uh, then the, the boy eventually came back and went back home to his mother. And his mother couldn't hear what was going on and when he came back she said what did you say to him he was so sad and all and he calmed down so quickly when you got over there and the boy said oh I didn't say anything I just sat in his lap and helped him cry sometimes that's all we need just somebody to be there with us and help us cry witness our pain, just say, I'm right here with you. But not take it away. And then there are times, of course, when we can do something, like so beautiful hearing Angie um, 
share about uh, the first responders where going through suffering together does bring out a deep compassion in so many of us and bring out the best in us. And there's something that uh, rises above the, the normal connection. And that's kind of magical. It was, you know, I'm sure most people were following the news and, and I have a number of friends who live up in uh, Sonoma and, and Napa who said, you know, as awful as this has been, and it's been really awful, there's been something so uh, moving and uplifting about going uh, through this with everybody else that um, was the silver lining anyway in a, in a very difficult situation. <clears throat> But you don't have to go in and rescue often. Just being there, I'm remembering uh, Annie Lamott's line that uh, she says, uh, lighthouses don't go running around the island uh, trying to save ships. They just stand there and shine. And if you somehow have are developing your own light, then it helps awaken that in others. It's like the light is just finding itself. <clears throat> so that's the, the good news. And of course, there's also challenges in relationship. There's conflicts in relationship, even with those that we're very close with, as I'm sure everyone here can attest. One mind is hard enough to get a handle on and control. Two minds, or a few, uh, make it that much more challenging. So, um, even in the best spiritual community, or the best relationship, the best marriage, um, dealing with different perspectives and with conflict is essential to helping each other grow. And the Buddha had some very simple but effective teachings around this that I found very helpful. Uh, he said, take a look, among other teachings, at how attached we are to our IP opinions and ideas of what's right and the truth. This is one of the great attachments, the second noble truth. The cause of suffering is attachment and one of those attachments is to ideas and opinions. My way is the right way. You ever have that thought? Mm -mm. Was it somebody saying I could be wrong? Was that, was that in here? Is that it? Yeah. Who is it? You said I could be wrong. Yeah, I remember actually, uh, I once went, uh, Sylvia Borstein, a beloved teacher here, uh, and she had her Wednesday class, and I brought my mom, uh, my, my sweet uh, beloved mom who passed away a few years ago, 
and she was oh, maybe about uh, 88 or so when, when this happened. We, uh, she was up here visiting and we went to uh, a class as Sylvia's uh, Wednesday morning. And Sylvia was talking about her practice saying um, uh, whenever she got caught in her view, she reminded herself, I could be wrong. And I said afterwards, Mom, what did you think of that talk? Did you enjoy Sylvia? She said, that had never occurred to me before. (laughs) We got a lot of mileage out of that the last few years. But we get so attached to our ideas and opinions not seeing that that's what's going on in everyone around us. The Dalai Lama says, um, he says, if somebody is upsetting you, understand that most of the time they aren't trying to hurt you or upset you, but it's often that just that their internal reality is intersecting with your internal reality in a way that does not meet your hopes and expectations. It's a very spacious way to see things which helps remove the blame and have a a sense of trying to understand what could that person be, have been thinking. You ever have that feeling, that, that thought, you know, why do they do that? Well, if you just soften it and say, oh, why do they do that? Oh, what's going on inside of them? And step outside your own reality, um, it's a profound practice. This is the, the perspective of just understanding causes and conditions and learning to open your heart and see the confusion inside and see that we have that in ourselves as well. We're so uh, easy to blame others and say, oh, they're really, they're really the bad ones, whether it's somebody close to us or somebody seemingly on a very different perspective. This is Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He says, if only it were all so simple, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being, and who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? And so whenever we blow it, actually becomes our springboard to compassion and seeing, oh yeah, Sometimes I make mistakes, sometimes I'm oblivious, sometimes I act out of confusion, greed, anger, triggering old habits. And when you see yourself 
acting unwisely, don't let it go to waste. See, oh yeah, there's, there's humanness in here and it gives a little bit more possibility of understanding what goes on outside of you. A number of years ago, I, I came across this poster. Uh, it was at UC Berkeley <clears throat> the, um, in one of the hallways and it was a, a picture of a very sad boy and the caption read, a child raised in a home with domestic violence is 700 times more likely to experience domestic violence in their adulthood. That kind of stopped me in my tracks as I reflected on who's to blame in that legacy of hurt and pain and anger and shame, just causes and conditions passed on, passed on. And so that can soften the heart a little bit, even when it makes no sense why somebody does what they do. You have no idea what they've gone through, just like they don't for you. So, as far as this dealing with not just conflict, but other perspectives, even hurtful perspectives, and right now, as, we're, as we've been mentioning, these are crazy times, really crazy times, and there can be anger and outrage and frustration and bitterness. Do we want to add to that? Do we want to add to the hatred that's out there? As the Buddha said, hatred never ceases by hatred. Hatred never ceases by hatred. Hatred only ceases by love. This is an ancient and eternal law. Now, I know what it's like to get outraged and, uh, and angry, but hatred is, is an, another step that just poisons us. The Buddha has this very high bar called, uh, in one discourse, called the simile of the saw. Now get ready for this. He says, don't meet hatred with hatred, no matter what. Even, and he goes through a series of different scenarios, if this happens, don't meet hatred with hatred. If this happens, this happens. Until finally at the end he says, if bandits were to capture you and 
took a saw and cut was cutting your limb off. One who knows my teaching does not respond with hatred. That's a pretty high bar, granted. Very high bar. But he's not saying don't be angry. He's not saying don't take care of yourself. He's not saying don't have fierce compassion to do what you need to do. But when the heart contracts in hatred, you've lost the perspective of wise understanding. So I say this to you not not to hold you up to some lofty standards, but just to see the possibility. This is um, Martin Luther King. The ultimate weakness of violence is that is a descending spiral begetting the very thing it seeks to destroy. Instead of diminishing evil, it multiplies it. Returning through violence, you murder the hate, but you do not murder, you, you, sorry, through violence, you murder the hater, but you do not murder hate. In fact, violence merely increases hate. Returning violence for violence multiplies violence, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Another Martin Luther King quote. You have no moral authority over those who can feel your underlying contempt. You have no moral authority over those who can feel your underlying contempt. And another one that I love by, by King, he says, uh, I've decided to stick with love. Hate is too great a burden to bear. So again, these, this is a tall order. Just something to aspire to or to see that when, mm, when we see like Jesus saw on the cross, forgive them, they know not what they do there's a whole other dimension of understanding and the heart opening that's, that's really profound. <clears throat> and especially in these times of divisiveness and othering, more than ever, we're in a race, as I said, I think last night, we're in a race between fear and consciousness. And so... The more we can bring consciousness to, uh, to the stew, uh, the more it's contagious. That's the beautiful thing about waking up together, that our own consciousness is contagious. Even for the difficult, even for those who cause harm, just seeing the confusion, forgive them. They know not what they do. And we have in the Buddhist teachings um, the loving kindness for the difficult. You pick a very difficult person and you wish them happiness. 
That's advanced loving kindness. But when you wish for their true happiness, you're not wishing for them to go ahead and have their fun making life miserable for others. You're wishing for them to discover true happiness. And if they do, they won't harm others. If they really see where true happiness lies, then they won't harm it. And you can wish that for them. While you take very strong, fierce action, and underneath your anger and your outrage, you feel the caring that's there. So, yes, there's conflict in community, conflict in this world, but to keep on valuing that wise heart that can see through those um, contracting emotions and to look for the good. To look for the divine in each of us. We were all, we all came into this world as innocent children and we all want to be safe and loved. Some, it's really obscured. But the more you can look for what's good, the more likely you'll bring it out. Because we respond to what we feel is being perceived in us. If you walk into a room and somebody is there judging you and you can feel them judging you, how do you feel? Judged. But if you feel that they're taking a look and seeing your goodness, it brings that out in you as well. So as we're here together, I would just really invite you as a, an extra credit assignment to just tune into the goodness of those around you and uh, help bring it out in them and them bringing it out in you just as something that you might try on because we respond to that kind of energy, you know, like in the Indian greeting, Namaste, which is, I bow to the divine in you. You can say it with a hello as well that really just sees that. So I'll, I want to share with you a, a, story, a little story as we draw this to a close and then have us um, do a little bit of exploring um, within ourselves. This story uh, concerns a monastery that had fallen upon hard times. It was once a great order, but because of persecution, all its branch houses were lost and there were only five monks left in the decaying house, the abbot and four others, all over 70 of a in age. Clearly, it was a dying order. In the deep woods surrounding the monastery, there was a little hut that a rabbi occasionally used for a hermitage. The old monks had become a bit psychic, so they always 
could sense when the rabbi was in his hermitage. The rabbi is in the woods. The rabbi is in the woods, they would whisper. It occurred to the abbot that a visit to the rabbi might result in some advice to save his monastery. The rabbi welcomed the abbot to his hut. But when the abbot explained his visit, the rabbi could only say, I know how it is. The spirit has gone out of the people. It's the same in my town. Almost no one comes to the synagogue anymore. So the old abbot and the old rabbi wept wept together. Then they read parts of the Torah and spoke of deep things. When the abbot had to leave, they embraced each other. It has been wonderful that we should meet after all these years, the abbot said, but I failed in my purpose for coming here. Is there nothing you can tell me that would help me save my dying order? No, I'm sorry, the rabbi responded. I have no advice to give, but I can tell you one thing. The Messiah is one of you. When the abbot returned to the monastery, his fellow monks gathered around him to ask, well, what did the rabbi say? The rabbi said something very mysterious, the abbot replied. It was something cryptic. He said that the Messiah is one of us. I don't know what he meant. In the time that followed, the old monks wondered whether the significance of the rabbi's words meant anything. The Messiah is one of us? Could he possibly have meant one of us? If so, which one? Do you suppose he meant the abbot? Yes, if he meant anyone, he probably meant Father Abbot. He's been our leader for more than a generation. On the other hand, he might have meant Brother Thomas. Certainly Brother Thomas is a holy man. Everyone knows that Thomas is a man of light. Certainly he could not have meant Brother Elred. Elred gets crotchety at times. But come to think of it, even though he's a thorn in people's sides, when you look back on it, Elred is virtually always right. Oh, often very right. Maybe the rabbi did mean Brother Elred, but surely not Brother Philip. Philip is so passive, a real nobody. But then, almost mysteriously, he has a gift for always being there when you need him. He just magically appears. Maybe Philip is the Messiah. Of course the rabbi didn't mean me. He couldn't possibly have meant me. I'm just an ordinary person. Yet supposing he did, supposing I am the Messiah, oh God, not me, I couldn't be that much for you, could I? As they contemplated, the old monks began to treat each other with extraordinary respect on the chance that one of them might be the Messiah. And they began to treat themselves with extraordinary respect too. People still occasionally came to visit the monastery in its beautiful forest, to picnic on, it in, on its tiny lawn, to wander along some of its paths, even to meditate in the dilapidated chapel. As they did so, they sensed the aura of extraordinary respect that began to surround the five old monks and seemed to radiate out from them and permeate the atmosphere of the place. 
there was something strangely compelling about it. Hardly knowing why, they began to come back to the monastery to picnic, to play, to pray. They brought their friends to this special place and their friends brought their friends. Then some of the younger men who came to visit the monastery started to talk more and more with the old monks. After a while, one asked if he could join them. Then another, and another. So within a few years, the monastery had once again become a thriving order, and thanks to the rabbi's gift, a vibrant center, vibrant center of light and spirituality in the realm. We affect each other, don't we? Why not bring out the best inside of you and offer it as a gift to everyone in your life so that you can be an agent and help awaken that in them? And then they pass on to others. So before we do a little exercise, here's one last piece, a poem called Sangha by Dana Falls. Teach me what I cannot learn alone. Let us share what we know and what we cannot fathom. Speak to me of mysteries and let us never lie to one another. May our fierce and tender longing fuel the fire in our souls. When we stand side by side, let us dare to focus our desire on the truth. May we be reminders, each for the other, that the path of transformation passes through the flames. To take one step is courageous. To stay on the path day after day, choosing the unknown and facing yet another fear together, that is nothing short of grace. So I'd like you just to, for a moment, go inside and uh, think of a time that you went through a tough period and a friend was there for you. Going through a hard one and somebody was right there. Or maybe more than one. Why did it help? Why was it healing if it was? What got transmitted that helped you hold things in a, in a 
skillful way. And now think of a time when you were there for someone else. Just because you were moved to. What moved you? How did it feel? How does it feel to really be there for someone just because you care? And to appreciate that this capacity is right inside of you. Okay, and now I invite you, now that it's been a day of quiet, you can uh, turn to a couple of people and hear their stories for the next, and they can hear yours for the next uh, 10 or 15 minutes and then we'll come back and close for the day. So just turn to a couple of people and um, you can can be three, can be two, and just, um, just share either being on the receiving end or the, the giving end of that caring and friendship. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.